Amen. Do take your seats. Thank you for being here today for week number three of our series pre-prayer where we are exploring how we can develop a deepening relationship with God that is just appropriated through prayer. Glad you could join us today. Now, later on in the, in the service, we're going to take communion, so don't worry if you didn't get any elements. Our team will make sure that they distribute those uh, just as we're ready to take communion. Now, as a reminder, in week number one, we said that God has prepared a place of prayer. It's accessed by faith, and it's hidden in Christ. In other words, the, the application here is prayer is something we do because we have intimacy with God, not because we desire intimacy with God. The starting place is the finished work of Christ. And as we practice prayer, we're demonstrating the reality of our intimate relationship with God in Christ. Now last week I said that God has prepared a place of prayer by gifting us the Holy Spirit who makes it possible for us to kind of focus on the Christ in whom we're hidden. In other words, God has made it possible through the Spirit for us to discern the mind of Christ, for us to look beyond the natural and to look to the heavenly and pray from the heavenly perspective. And I said, listen, this is an important message that the church has to embrace. We're to pray God's thoughts for our nation, not ours. We're to seek His mind, recognizing that His mind and our thoughts are not always the same. Today's idea is this, God has prepared a place of prayer, and in that place, we behold God's glory and we reflect it to the world. Prayer is that place where we behold who God is, and our ministry for Christ in the world is ultimately a reflection of who God is. Now, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. We're in the Old Testament again, and we're going to use the Old Testament as a foundation for discerning what this means for you and for me. Exodus chapter 33, we're going to start reading from verse 15. It's going to be a familiar story to many of you. And after we've read the story, we're going to jump back and go through verse 1 for us to understand the context. I think many of us misunderstand the context for this. So Exodus 33, beginning from verse 15. Then Moses said to him, "If that's to God, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? The defining feature of believers here is the ongoing presence of God. What else will distinguish me and your people from all of the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked of me because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Very familiar story, this one, where Elijah requests to see God's glory and he's privileged to get that experience. Now, this story in Exodus 33 is based on the tragic events of Exodus chapter 32, which is the story of the golden calf. That story led to the opening two verses of chapter 33, where Moses is now uncertain of whether God is going to accompany his people into the promised land in the way that he'd accompanied them so far. Now, what's clear is that God is not going to abandon his people. That's pretty clear from those opening two verses. In those verses, God promises an angel, Malak, I'll get to that later on, to go with them. But God says, listen, I'm going to keep my distance from you because of the sinfulness, the stubbornness, the unfaithfulness of my people. Now, please note from verse 3 that God does this not to punish his people, but to protect them. God says, listen, I am not going to go with you because if I do, not very nice words, but they're in the Bible so we can't black them out. If I do, I might destroy you. This talks about God's wrath. God's wrath is his set opposition to all forms of sin. And God is concerned that the consistent, persistent unfaithfulness and stubbornness of his people would ultimately lead to him destroying them if he goes with them. God's wrath is his steadfast opposition to all forms of sin. We don't like talking about God's wrath, but God's holiness means that he must move against all forms of sin. So these are the opening three verses. This sets the foundation for that encounter that we've just looked at. And I wonder how many of us say to ourselves or sometimes, God, just give me a glimpse of your glory in the way that Moses had it. I wonder whether we want to experience what it's like to stand in the gap on behalf of an unfaithful people who've been idolatrous in order to get that kind of experience. The experience that Moses has at the end of chapter 33 is based on what it's like to walk alone in an unfaithful nation leading an unfaithful people. That's what led to the encounter. So at the end of verse 3, Moses is distraught. Verse 4, if you look at it, implies that what God told Moses, Moses told the people. So the people are under the impression now that that's it. 
God isn't going to go with them in the way that he once did. And, and the people, like Moses, wonder, what does that actually mean? What is the consequence of our unfaithfulness on the ongoing presence of God. What is this gonna look like? And so what we read is that Moses does something. Moses takes his tent, he walks outside of the camp of the people, he, he places his tent there in order to intercede and to mediate for God. We get the picture here of mediation, of intercession. He moves away from a people to be closer to God, away from the sinfulness, and there what we read is that the glory of God in the form of the cloud descends on the tent, and we get the picture here of all of the people looking at God be with Moses, wondering whether he would ever be with them in the same way again. Moses would go into the tent in order to meet with God, to commune with God, and when he would leave the tent, the cloud would rise, and the text says that Moses had Joshua, who would assume the mantle of leadership, stand guard at the tent while it was outside. So the story then really begins with Moses going into hiding away from the people, not for his protection, but because of intercession and the need of connection with God because he needed to know what God was planning to do. See, Moses needed time with God to discern God's will. I think the primary responsibility of believers in this nation right now is that we need to know what God is planning to do. Jesus made that his kind of mantra. He said, I only do what the Father tells me. I only say what the Father reveals to me. God has prepared a place of prayer, and it's accessed by faith through the finished work of Christ. God has prepared a place of prayer, and he's gifted us the Holy Spirit to, to know God's will. God has prepared a place of prayer. It's close to him. Why? So that we would know his thoughts, understand what he's doing, and then behold his glory and reflect that to the world. Moses, you see, knew that they could not be the people of God without maintaining the presence of God. Do we know that? Do we know that we cannot continue actively as children of God without cultivating the fellowship, the intimacy that we have with God? Pre-prayer, a series designed to encourage us and challenge us to deepen our relationship with God through prayer. We can have a relationship with God, but it doesn't make it dynamic. Moses cultivated his relationship with God because he knew that they could not maintain the reality of being the people of God without maintaining the active ministry of the presence of God. And this drives Moses' prayer that we read from verse 12. At first glance, Moses' prayer doesn't seem to make sense if you look at verse 12. In verse 12, he says, hey God, Past tense, you have been telling me, lead these people. Past tense. God, up until this moment, you've told me, lead these people. Now, when you read it, it's like, why, why is Moses praying? This, this doesn't seem to make any sense in the context of what God has just said he's not going to do. 
But it has everything to do with what God has just said. You see, when God came to Moses, right at the start of the book of Exodus, he said, Moses, this is what I want you to do. I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. Now, you remember what Moses said? God, you've got the wrong guy. I'm unqualified, I'm ill-equipped, and I can't even speak publicly. You remember what, Mo what God told Moses? Moses, it's okay. I'll give you Aaron, and Aaron will be the guy who will actually speak for you. After the events of chapter 32, it becomes pretty clear that Aaron has lost all credibility to hold that office. He's led the people in idolatrous worship, and Moses is wondering, okay, God, what now? To make matters worse, God said, I'm not going to go with you either. So Moses is basically looking at the sinfulness, at the stubbornness of the people. And he presses into God because he needs to know, God, what is your purpose for this nation? What is your purpose? How am I supposed to do this? I'm feeling completely alone. Now, some of you may well point out that in verses 1 and 2, God promises an angel, but that word malak means ambassador or messenger. It doesn't necessarily mean a heavenly being. It could be another Aaron. The word is used, malak, in Exodus 14.9, but there it refers to, and the, it's called the angel of the Lord, which commentators will tell you is what is called a theophany. It is absolutely an evan a, a divine being. In fact, a number of New Testament commentators would call this a Christophany. They believe it is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. Happens a number of times in the Old Testament. So Moses is looking at this saying, okay, you promised me a Malak, an ambassador, a, a, a kind of a, a messenger, but what kind of messenger is this? What is going on, God? Help me, show me, I do not know what you are doing. So yet again, you see, Moses is hiding himself away, not because he needs protection, but because he needs direction. He needs heavenly thoughts. Maybe now you'll understand why in verse 13, we read what we do. In verse 13, Moses says, teach me your ways. Teach me your ways. I need to know your thoughts, God. Why? So that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Moses realizes that the continuation of God's favor on him is directly related to understanding what God seeks to do in the world that he's in, in the season that he's in, in the time that he's in. So Moses asks for understanding of God's plans, not for an affirmation of God's presence. Do you get that? How many of us in a national crisis say, God, won't you show me that you are with me? How many of us in a personal crisis say, God, won't you show me that you are with me? Moses knows God is real. He doesn't need to discover God's presence. He needs to discover God's purpose. 
He needs to know God's thoughts. He needs to know God's plans. God has designed a place of prayer for him, and that place is a place where he could discover purpose. Why? Because prayer is driven by the reality of intimacy, not by the desire for intimacy. Why? Because God makes it possible when we draw close to him to understand his ways. And when we understand his ways, we are able to move out and act with his favor, which in the New Testament means under his anointing. Again, when you go through a crisis, what is your prayer? The finished work of Jesus basically means that you are close to God. So many times in a crisis we say, God, show me your presence, when what we need to be saying is, show me your purpose. Sometimes God does that. At other times he says, trust me. Years later, looking back, you'll find out. And for some of us, it may take us to get to the other side to actually realize what the purpose is. See, sometimes... We need to know what God is doing. That's what Moses' prayer is about. Now, if you have a look at verse 14, this is a really interesting verse. In verse 14, numerous translations here have the word presence capitalized. My presence will be with you. If you have a look at that, it's a capital P. That's really interesting. Because the word here is lifne, it's actually the word from which we get face. It's from panim or pana in the Hebrew. I always remember that because of Pastor Panna in Cambodia. Whenever you see Panna, he's got this radiant smile, radiates joy. So what is God saying here? My face will go with you and I will give you rest. Notice, please, in the English translations, we have you twice. I, my face will go with you, and I will give you rest. Now, in the Hebrew, the first you here, I will go with you, is not there. It's unnecessary in the Hebrew language. So the English translations supply this. The second you is in the Hebrew, but it's singular, not plural. Moses, I will go with you. You. I'll go with you. Now, some commentators try to make this a collective singular because they don't like the implication. Collective singular is a posh way of saying plural. Oh, it, it's singular, but it actually means plural. I want to say, no, it means singular. God is saying, you know what, Moses? They've had their chance, and they've burned it. They've blown it. You're not perfect, but at least you seek my heart. You don't bow down to idols and do all this kind of stuff. So guess what? I'm going to go with you, and I'm going to give you rest. But I want you to look at what Moses says in verse 15. And this is why I don't believe that this is a plural or a collective singular. Look at what Moses says. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Twice in these verses, Moses connects himself with the idolatrous nation that he's a part of. Moses is not content for God's face to be on him alone, but he pleads for it to be on his nation. You see, Moses' fate is intimately connected with that of his people. 
That's why I say it is a mistake to think of this encounter that he has with God simply about him. For Moses, it's never about him. It's always about God and his people. Friends, I want to say this. Some of you may be disillusioned with the state of the nation. Some of you may be disillusioned with, even with believers in, the own body, in our own body and what they're doing. But I want to tell you this. A true servant of God is one who, no matter what people do, fully identifies with the people and doesn't call down judgment first without calling down mercy. I believe God is calling his people to intercede for the nation. Why? Because there is no room for doom and gloom in the church. This week, I can't tell you how many emails I got from people giving me conspiracy theories about what's going on. And I'm like, have you forgotten what Jesus said? I will build my church and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Do you not know that the church is going to be fine because Jesus has promised to protect it? But we can get into that, that state where we just think the whole world's falling apart, everything's going wrong. Moses had a reason to do that. But he knew this, God was real, God could be trusted, and that if he would press into what God, uh, who God was, he would discern what God wanted to do. I say it again, the primary responsibility of the church in the world is to discern God's will. That's why we've, in our elder meetings, elder board meetings, over and over again, we focus on discernment, 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 discernment. Not management, discernment. Discernment. We need to know what God wants. Moses needed to know what God wanted. The purpose of this encounter is not personal, it's purposeful. And one purpose of prayer is that believers pick up the mantle and intercede on the part of the people that we serve, even when those people do things that we consider to be worthy of judgment. So in verse 17, if you look at this, God says, okay, Moses, I will do what you've asked me to do. I will be with my people. And then if you go into Exodus chapter 34, verse 10, you will see that God ratifies again the covenant. He reinstates that covenant. And the people would need to embrace it. And it is after all of this then that Moses says, God, show me a glory. Show me a glory. <laughs> I want to say it again. This isn't personal for Moses. This is purposeful. When we pray, God, reveal your presence to me. Reveal your glory to me. It shouldn't be personal before it's purposeful. If we have come to Christ, we have already had that revelation of God's goodness, his presence, and his glory. God may in his goodness decide to give us more. But you know what? Even if he doesn't, we don't need it because it's already been revealed. We know who God is. And what does the Bible say? Those who approach God must know that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God, show me your glory. Now, why does he do this? It's not personal. Moses had already received a revelation of God's glory. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. He's running away from his issues in Egypt, and there God turns up and displays his glory to him in the form of a burning bush. 
we're told in Exodus chapter 3 that this revelation was so overwhelming that Moses, get this, covered his face out of fear. Covered his face, hold on to that, covered his face out of fear. Moses has already had a revelation of God's glory. He's not an experienced junkie. He doesn't need to go around to all of the conferences to have another experience of God and another one and another one and another one. Moses knows that God is there. The people, even they know that God is there. How do we know that? In verses 5 through 8, we see the people watching as Moses goes into the tent. And guess what happens to the pillar of cloud? It descends onto the tent, and the people watch. And when Moses comes out, the pillar goes up. They'd experienced that pillar as the manifestation of the presence of God that led them by day. It's not about a personal encounter with God. This is about knowing God's purpose for them in the world. Moses also knows that at numerous times in this journey so far, God has freely chosen to display his glory in a way that was witnessed by many people. And so in Exodus chapter 16, God said that the people would witness his glory after they moaned about being hungry. And they did, Exodus 16, 7 through 10. They perceived the glory of God. In Exodus 24, another example, the covenant is confirmed as God yet again displays his glory to the nation on the mountain, Exodus 24, 16 and 17. What's different in Exodus 33 is that Moses now takes the initiative. See, in Exodus 16 and Exodus 24 and Exodus 3, God takes the initiative because Moses doesn't know that this is the way that God works. God ratifies his presence with his people through a display of his glory. But now, having seen it in chapter 3, chapter 16, chapter 24, Moses takes the initiative. He's bold. God, if you really mean that you're going to be with your people, then what I want you to do is to do again what you've done before. Every time you promise to be with someone, you've displayed your glory to me in chapter 3, you've displayed your glory to your people in chapter 16, and you've done it again in chapter 4. This is what I want you to do, God. If you're serious about this, I want to see your glory. He's bold. He knows who God is. He knows what God does, and he just trusts it and steps out in faith. See, Moses connects, correctly so, the glory of God with God's commitment to be with his people. And so Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. I want an indication that you are going to be with me as I lead your people. That's this context. This encounter is not about Moses experiencing the glory again. No, it's about what happens when believers find themselves in situations where they don't know what God is doing. God, I just don't know what you're doing. So here's what we do when we don't know what God is doing. We enter the place of prayer. We go hide ourselves. We go hide. Why? Because we know there's a place of prayer that's accessed through the finished work of Jesus. We go hide ourselves because we know that God has given us, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the spirit that enables us to pray, not simply from the natural, but actually to perceive God's thoughts. And, and thirdly, we go hide ourselves because we know that when we go and hide, God will reveal his glory. We will understand his ways. And in chapter 34, we'll see in a moment, that's exactly what happens. So what does all of this teach us about prayer? Three things. 
First, I want you to know this. If you're in a season of struggle, or even if you're in a season of blessing, whatever season you're in, God has prepared a place for you, and it's close to him. There is one thing that's slightly different with this encounter. It's the way that it's described. God says, and it's the part that Karen in her story picked up on, right? She said that God was saying to her, she, as that song was being sung, she just recognized that God had prepared a place close to him for her. And he'd hidden her. He was going to protect her. That's what's different in this encounter. It, it's that God says to Moses, hey, I'm going to place you near to me. I'm going to place you close to me. And what we discover through the finished work of Christ is that that is what God has done to us. He's actually covered us with the righteousness of Christ with which we've been clothed to protect us from his holiness, but he has prepared a place for you and for me that is close to him. Secondly, what we've also discovered is that there's a tangible benefit from that. In Exodus chapter 34, as Moses descends the mountain, he doesn't realize the text says that his face is shining. And he comes down with the people, and God is in 34.10, restated his commitment to be with his people. He's given Moses the Ten Commandments. Moses comes down again, but Moses doesn't realize that his face is shining. And so he calls all the people to him, but they're afraid. Because Moses' face is shining. Now, I, I kind of wonder what's that like. What's it like for a face to shine? The nearest I can come to it is, is just on those kind of Saturdays in Michigan when I go out in the sun and I don't put sunblock block on this nose of mine, which with the receding hairline means that I go really red. And then you put this 4K camera on it and you magnify me to like be 16 feet tall. My nose shines. Man, oh man, does my forehead shine. It's like a slap head here. It just shines. I mean, we don't know what this looked like. But we know that there was this incredible benefit of spending time in the place that God has prepared for us because we start to reflect his glory. And Moses isn't aware of it. And I wonder how many of us have spent so much time close to Jesus that we're not aware of the fact that we reflect his glory. I wonder how many of us are trying to do God's work without any kind of reflection of his glory at all. But there's a brilliant passage when Moses becomes aware of this in chapter 34, 33 through 35. This is what we read. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. He had to cover his face. You see, they, they weren't able to comprehend it. And these were believers, remember. They weren't e able to deal with it. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with God, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what, he, what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant and that Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went to speak in with the Lord again. What's the point here? When we draw close to God, we are impacted by his glory. We're impacted by his glory. We see the application of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul 
starts to talk about the, the application of this for the church. He's really building off the idea that God has prepared a place for his people, and that's close to God. And he says, listen, the amazing thing is that even though so many people would just love the experience that Moses has had, what we need to recognize is that in and through the finished work of Jesus, God has done far more than that. And so what I want to do as we prepare to come around the Lord's table and the team are going to come up, I want to read 2 Corinthians 3. And I want you to perceive, to comprehend what God has done, what God has made possible through the finished work of Jesus. He has made it possible for you to draw close to him. He has made it possible for the fact that when you draw close to him, you are impacted by his glory. And that has ramifications for the way that we exist as God's people in the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 1. Are we beginning, Paul says, to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are a letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ. Notice that, please. You show, hold on to that. You show that you are a letter from Christ. The result of our ministry written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets but on tablets of human hearts. See the analogy here? Exodus 33, 34. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. There is a place accessible by faith only through the finished work of Christ. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, not of the law, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. God has written a new law in our hearts through the finished work of Christ. Paul goes on, verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory. So Paul is saying the old covenant here was designed to reveal sin, not to remove it. Sin was covered until that point in time when Christ came to remove its effects permanently once and for all. So that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. The ministry of the Spirit is even more glorious. If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious. In other words, if you can look and read the experience of Moses and think, man, how much more, Paul says, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Righteousness, not our righteousness, but being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. For what was glorious has no glorious glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? See, there's an unfading glory that is experienced when we accept Christ by faith, and that removes the veil, and it enables us to enter into the presence of God boldly. Verse 12, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are bold. Hebrews, we enter the throne of grace boldly. We are bold. Why? Because we're not like Moses. 
who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when reading when the old covenant is read. Because they're still waiting for this issue to be dealt with when Christ has dealt with it. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And verse 18, and we are all, and we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Now in the Old Testament, the word glory is the word kabod. It means weight. It's the idea of Moses being weighted down with the honor and the glory that comes from God. But in the New Testament, the word is doxa. That word doxa comes from the, the now distinct or extinct word that actually means show, show or to reveal. And the idea is because of what Christ has done, the heaviness, the heavy weight of beholding God's glory has been transformed through the finished work of Jesus so that anyone who encounters Jesus now shows, demonstrates God's glory to the world. And the point is this, through the finished work of Christ, we can experience more than Moses. We can experience more than Moses. So I want to ask you, are you making use of this finished work of Christ? Are you pressing into God? Are you drawing close to him? Do you not know that there is a place close to him that Christ has made possible? And do you not know that it's in that place that God's will is revealed to you, that God's purposes are revealed to you? And the benefit of that, as we'll see in just a moment, is that we get to display that glory to the world. But right now, with the team here, what I want you to do is, I want you to take the elements that you have. This is the great opportunity in light of 2 Corinthians 3 for us to remember the finished work of Jesus. If you're here and you haven't got the elements, we have an open communion policy, which means you don't need to be a member of our church to take this. You just need to be a member of the kingdom of God. You need to be a member of the family of God. So if you didn't get an element on the way, the elements on the way in, simply raise your hand and our team of people would be delighted to, uh, to give you at these elements. But again, even at home, if you're watching online, let's celebrate the finished work of Christ. Let's realize what God has done in Christ Jesus. That God has prepared a way for you and me to boldly approach him. So if you peel back the top layer here, that will reveal the bread. Let's remember what Jesus said. In answer to Exodus 34.3, where God says, hey, I can't go with you because I might destroy you, we celebrate the fact that through the death of Jesus, the punishment, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. And Jesus said, listen, this is my body that is broken for you. Take now and eat in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, we read that he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new covenant that shows the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus said, drink this in remembrance of me.
I want to give you space to just meditate on the finished work of Jesus. And as we do that, our team will just sing a song and then I'll come and wrap up.